0: This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review The Gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Friday, April 26, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and Senator Elizabeth Warren has unveiled a massive plan to totally overhaul the U.S. system of, well, there aren't too many things that you can't end that sentence with. I mean, she's done something old, farms, something new, tech, something borrowed, national parks, something blue, stocks that pay dividends to people who are already wealthy. All right, that was a stretch. But you know what else is a stretch? The debt payments that a lot of college graduates have to make. And Elizabeth Warren has a plan to absolve them of that debt. Now, I don't love all of Elizabeth Warren's proposals. She's actually had a few bad ideas in there, like foreigners can't own farms. And some are kind of besides the point of the main problem that they're trying to attack. I mean, at least how she talks about her tech proposals. Way too much of it is about Amazon favoring its own brand of coffee maker on its website. But by and large, I like the idea that they have specificity and details spelled out. I do think, however, there is a bit of fetishizing the specificities of the proposals or just the fact that she has proposals. Oh yeah, she's White Paper Warren, but that doesn't mean that everyone else can't or won't have good ideas, and maybe even, if history is a guide, her exact ideas. I mean, White Paper Warren could give way to Consequential Concepts Kamala or Substantial schemes, Swalwell. hmm Also, you don't have to come up with the plan in order to implement it effectively, and conversely, enacting a program and envisioning a program, they aren't actually that closely related. But there is one objection to this latest debt relief plan, one very trendy objection that I reject, and it's that it's not progressive enough, that the people it would benefit are not the poorest among us. They might even be, ready, the middle class. You know what, guys? That's okay. That's okay. Broad government proposals that are broadly appealing wind up being some of the most successful government proposals. It's weird how that works in a democracy, huh? Actually, my complaint with the debt relief idea is that it's really pretty expensive i don't know if it's the best bang for your buck i think some sort of free tuition which he also of course proposes might be a better use of money even though it would cost more money but the idea that it will help lots of middle class people therefore we've done something wrong that is a nuts idea here are some other programs that help the middle class and sometimes even i don't even want to say it but the upper middle class or even the lower upper class i'll just name a few roads, schools, parks, social security, you know, the very reasons people don't hate government. The standard for a helpful proposal shouldn't be, well, could we concoct a more helpful proposal to poor people? I mean, almost always the answer is yes. The standard should be, is this more helpful to more people than what we're currently doing? We shouldn't judge the effectiveness of a proposal against an ideal, the perfectly progressive program that only exists in someone's imagination, probably Bernie's. We should compare ideas against the things that we're actually already doing and spending money on and saying, could we maybe spend our money better like this $640 million in college debt relief? Let's compare it to building 15 more prisons. It's about the same cost. Let's compare it to the fact that over the next 10 years, the U.S. will spend billion to maintain and modernize its nuclear weapons. I'm not saying lose all the nukes. I mean, they've certainly made America richer and happier since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And also, no one has ever dared mess with the United States in a war since we acquired the nukes. I mean, I'm definitely saying keep some of the nukes. But let's maybe use that as the standard to judge a social program against. Shouldn't be, is it perfectly progressive as defined by some guy at the Economic Policy Institute or Jacobin Magazine? And you've got to think that if enacted, programs that help only, and quite shockingly, the richest 55% of Americans might actually be smart programs to favor for a candidate who's looking to attract actual voters, even if that winds up appalling the staff of Jacobin Magazine. On the show today, I spiel about Joe Biden, his apology to Anita Hill, and the people who chose not to accept it. But first, lies, misimpressions, things your old high school teacher believes in and wants you to know about. Where do all these ideas come from? Facebook, the answer is Facebook. But why do they lodge in our conscience? The answer has to do with what we want from each other. And that's not information, it's status The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, up next. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And it won't just be stuffy panels. Oh, but it'll be them too. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. I'll be asking questions to the people who usually ask questions in this, the podcast industry. I can't wait for it. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. See you Saturday, June 8th. So Rene Descartes walks into a bar and two guys at the end of the bar are debating about Brexit. And one lists a statistic about how much money England pays into the healthcare fund of the continent. And the other one says that's not true. They turn to Rene Descartes and they say, Rene... Do you think this is true? And he says, I think not and proof he disappears. Now, the reason that's a funny joke for years has been A, it's not a funny joke. B, it is a direct contradiction of Rene Descartes' philosophy. And normally that's where it stops. But my next guests are really interested in the misinformation that was being debated in that bar and what a Cartesian or another kind of philosopher would say about it. They are Kaylin O'Connor and James Owen Weatherall. They are professors at UC Irvine. They have written The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, Professors, thank you both for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, the misinformation age, meaning now, but I would say for millennia, doctors did surgery without washing their hands, and in the last 150, that's when they started washing their hands. How's this the misinformation age?
1: Well, misinformation has been around forever, Mm -hmm. and false beliefs have been around forever. And certainly, false scientific beliefs have been rampant, as you point out, in the medical field especially, What we're really referring to is the special change happening with social media right now, where because people are so connected to each other, interacting so much, misinformation is spreading. And then there are also these special opportunities for people to pose as individuals on the Internet. You know, people to pose as someone on Twitter, Russian agents to pose on Facebook and spread misinformation that way. But
0: more than in the past or it's just just as as a consequence of the age we're in that misinformation can spread and get weaponized so quickly, we also notice it so quickly. I mean, the snake oil salesman very much predates Facebook and we had a lot of misinformation when we were, say – defining America, right? Thomas Jefferson thought that black people sweated differently, for instance.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, so the way that we think about it is that the history of new media for the last like 500 years is a history of new ways for people to try to manipulate other people's beliefs and then new ways to, you know, get savvy to the ways in which your beliefs are getting manipulated. And so really what we're talking about is the ways in which Things are evolving right now, and in particular, the way in which uh, changes in how we interact with one another have changed how sort of social factors and how misinformation spreads matter, um, in some ways making them matter more.
1: But we also use the history of misinformation and false belief, especially scientific false belief, going back hundreds of years to try to understand misinformation now.
0: Right. So you start off talking about the fruit that people thought had lamb, like actual little tiny lambs in it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> d- do you want the story? sure? Yeah. Give me the some Give me the thumbnail of the lamb fruit.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, this was a belief. I mean, a medieval European belief that uh, it, growing in India were these plants that had these pods on them, and if you opened the pods, inside would be a tiny lamb, and people thought you could eat this lamb and collect its wool, and you actually found pictures of this in these medieval naturalist textbooks, and this belief was preserved in Europe for 400 years, actually.
0: So is the idea that back then that was the misimpression and it stayed and didn't much change, but now there are more ways to change beliefs and influence beliefs and we're we're experiencing more angst with how quickly beliefs uh, can actively be, uh, we can be misinformed about
2: beliefs? I mean, I I would say that some of the core mechanisms that were responsible for the propagation and, and of false beliefs in in the middle ages are are still active right so right. look what happened with the vegetable lamb is some guy wrote a book in which he claimed that he didn't one, and then everyone who wrote a uh, textbook on botany for the next four hundred years said, "Well, this guy said he ate one, so they must be real, yeah, the uh, middle ages equivalent of sharing some debunked meme uh, on Facebook. So we're actually, you know, we're looking at those historical examples to try to understand what happened, why these sorts of beliefs would spread, uh, and then asking, well, what's the modern version of that sort of propagation? And arguing that if you understand these sorts of mechanisms, you can see how social media has sort of amplified a process that, of of course, has been around forever. Yeah. So what are the methods?
1: Well, so what we think was so important to understand about that case and then the modern case is that often when we think about individual beliefs and why we're wrong about things, we're focusing on how people are bad at reasoning. So we say things like, People are bad at probabilities or they have these reasoning biases. They just believe things that confirm their already held beliefs. But we don't focus as much sometimes on the social aspect of belief most of the things we believe we just learn directly from other people. So other people tell us things, we believe them, we pass them to those in our networks. That's what happened with the vegetable lamb. So nobody in Europe would have believed this thing if they hadn't been kind of telling each other about it. And that's what happens on social media too. We're used to trusting other people to get beliefs. And that's kind of what we have to do because we can't go out and test everything for ourselves, That's right. right? And that,
0: was always thus, right? With with the radio, there was ample ways to try to misinform with newspapers and this colony on the moon that the New York Sun, I think it was, said that they discovered and Mm -hmm. invented. That's always been true. Maybe we're very sensitive to it now, again, for the same reasons that new media is, there's a barrage of it. There's a fire hose of it. It's so quick. So it seems much more present and pernicious, or maybe just that we don't know history.
2: Well, I, I think that it's also that, you know, one of the ways in which uh, early in the twentieth century, a very effective way of, of trying to manipulate people's beliefs was to attribute certain ideas to authority figures. Right. right? And so this is where you get things like you know certain cigarettes are recommended by your doctor. You know, nine out of ten dentists say to right. smoke Chesterfields. No one looks at those ads false now.
0: Ap- false appeals to authority. Yeah. Exactly. It's a classic.
2: But again, it's a classic logical uh, problem. True. Yes. That's true. Um, but it's also it it's playing on the way in which we trust people. Right. And look. I think people don't buy cigarettes on those grounds now. We adapt to changes in ways of manipulating us. And I think one of the things that's happening now is that those changes are happening faster than we can adapt to them. Or we're becoming aware of, you know, last year's problem without – being aware that that's no longer the, the main way in which we're being manipulated and there are these other new things that people are doing.
1: I think another thing that's different about social media is this thing I kind of mentioned before, which is that if you look at other past forms of media, it was harder for people to pose as someone else and for humans who are used to trusting other humans right. – Other individuals, if someone can pose as another individual on Facebook who somehow looks like you or shares various characteristics with you or you think this person's in my animal lovers group or my gun rights group or my LGBTQ Mm -hmm. rights
0: group. Lamb fruit group. Yeah, Yeah,
1: they can can manipulate your trust in a, a new sort of way, I think. Right.
0: To what extent is the death of expertise playing into it? You were talking about, you know, four to five dentists surveyed, which probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be an ad campaign today. Putting aside cigarettes, just tried and gum, which isn't nearly as controversial as cigarettes. Now... Is it the case now that we've, we've generally tossed aside the role of experts and expertise and people who are just regular people, we've given them more authority than we once did? Um, I know they could pose as a friend, but we are deferring to Jenny McCarthy's take on vaccination because she seems relatable. Is this a newfound
1: phenomenon? You know, I don't know whether we actually are doing that more than we did before. Yeah. But we do see people doing something that... um You know, when people can go online and find others who have their same false or misled beliefs. so anti-vaxxers can find other anti-vaxxers on the internet, they can then share evidence with each other, bolster each other's opinions, they can kind of create a social group where they're all conforming to each other, they're saying, no, you're right, we're right, don't listen to those other people. It can create a kind of group that protects every individual from outside evidence or outside disconfirmation.
2: I I also kind of think that the idea that people believe vaccination is dangerous because Jenny McCarthy told them so is maybe like a caricature. I think you're right. I think it's she, the people who, I'm going
0: to say like all of us, who vaccinate our kids, (laughs) right? Look at Jenny McCarthy and we're extra upset, but she probably is not actually uh, influencing as many people as we think. She's just the one person with the big name who we can't believe is doing
2: that. Well, I I think that, that she's playing a somewhat different role, which is she's helping draw people's attention to the issues. And then, you know, one of, the thing that, one of the things that's, I think, remarkable about something like vaccines is that most of the people, I think, who are not vaccinating their children aren't doing it casually because they heard about it from someone. They're They think of themselves as experts. They think they're the ones who have gone and really done the research and have figured out what's what. They're probably right. I
0: mean they probably can name more technical terms that actually are technical terms and not just made up than I can. I just defer to the authority of the doctors because that's the kind of person I am. I mean I read some other information Mm -hmm. about the ill effects of not vaccinating. Yeah, I mean, the people who are really into the Hillary Clinton was behind the Uranium One scandal, like really into it, know the names of all the sites in Montana. I just know the in broad strokes that it's bullshit. So, yeah, you're right. They do have a certain kind of expertise. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They're not seeing the big picture.
1: Well, they're trusting the wrong experts, basically.
0: And the reason is, and this is your general thesis, is because it's not that they've made some mental miscalculation. It's because of these other societal factors, this group dynamic, this identity that is causing them to buy into misinformation.
1: Yeah, so I mean what I would like to say about a lot of cases like this is that you're used to thinking, you know, some people would say something like, "Oh, if you believe vaccinations dangerous, you're so stupid." But it would be right to think that you, in the right social context, would hold a lot of false beliefs, too, and would hold the same false beliefs. So if you were surrounded by all the people you trusted being like, no vaccines really are dangerous, here's all this evidence of it. Of course, we know that evidence isn't good evidence. You might believe the same thing, too.
2: And it's also, look, I'm sure that we hold lots of false beliefs. And it's also the case, I'm sure, that... um not all of the arguments that are given against vaccines, for instance, are spurious. I mean, I I think it it doesn't need to be the case that everything anyone says, you know, defending the idea that vaccines aren't safe or that they aren't reliable, has to be completely wrong for it to still be the case that, you know, independent experts who evaluate the evidence with some background knowledge that's relevant to evaluating the arguments determine that the weight of the evidence is strongly on one side, not the other.
0: I think people who are given to... bad beliefs, you know, believing in things that aren't true in general, tell themselves that they'd be a greater sucker for being um, credulous. That there's a higher cost to their credulity than to their skepticism. So they wear skepticism as sort of um, a badge of honor and uh, an armor. And I don't know that th- that has always been true. Okay, so if you were to uh, – I hate to summarize your book, but the thing that's different about the book – and because, and, you know, the book brings up all these interesting examples that you want to talk about and understand why do people believe these bad things. But that's not exactly the contribution to the book. The mm-hmm. contribution to the book, I think, is more like we need to understand misinformation in a different way. And that way is what?
1: Inherently social. So when we look at how people are trying to manipulate our beliefs online, we need to know that they're paying attention to these kind of social mechanisms and being really savvy about them. So, I mean, this is now a little bit of an outdated example, but we know in the run-up to the 2016 election, Russian agents didn't just go online and be like, vote for Trump, anyone. You know, they posed as all these different kind of characters on Facebook. You know, they posed as members of LGBTQ groups and gun rights groups and animal lovers groups. And they did that to build social trust that they could eventually use to influence people. So they knew how important social trust is to the spread of beliefs and to social manipulation. So we need to have these general theories of the social spread of knowledge in order to recognize and prevent the manipulation of our beliefs online.
0: So now I want to—I've asked you a lot of questions based on the conclusions of your book, but how did you—I don't know. I don't exactly understand how you guys do your job. So you're a professor of—you're a little bit different. You're a professor of what, Kayla?
1: So we're actually both in the same department, Uh which is logic and philosophy of science. We do slightly different areas of philosophy of science, so— What I do is philosophy of the behavioral sciences, and in particular, I do a lot of modeling work. So this is using computers and computer simulations to try to understand human behavior and cultural evolution and how human behavior emerges. Uh, And in particular, I had done a lot of work on scientific communities and how consensus emerges in scientific communities, the spread of scientific belief, et cetera.
0: So you set up a model to – give us an example – From the book, a thesis and then how you set up a model and if you proved your thesis.
1: Okay, so here was one thing we were curious about in the book. Can there be situations where a group polarizes, so ends up with these stable opposing beliefs even though they all are just trying to learn the truth and they're actually paying attention to real evidence from the world. okay, And they're pretty good at incorporating that evidence into their beliefs. Yeah,
0: people whose process is pretty good. We'd all say, great process, and yet, oh my God, you've come to such different conclusions. Can
1: can a group of scientists polarize on some matter of fact, even though they're all like working in an appropriate scientific manner? So then we build a model where we create these little agents in our computer simulation Uh, where the agents are meant to represent scientists. So there's a way they can gather evidence from the world. There are ways they can share evidence with each other. And there are ways they can change their beliefs based on that evidence. And then what we showed in this particular model is suppose they don't trust evidence coming from other individuals who don't share their beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if their beliefs get far enough apart, they no longer listen to the evidence coming from other people. We show that they can polarize.
0: Oh, okay. Even
1: though there's no political background that would drive them towards that or no social or moral values pushing so them So basically,
0: apart. reasonable people can disagree, but once they disagree and then then they start to discount the evidence from other reasonable people, they begin to think that they're unreasonable. Yeah, so... And then we'll never get to consensus or,
1: or it might take a long time. Or truth, time.
0: forget consensus, yeah. like the right answer. Right. right. Yeah.
1: And if you think about it, the people with the wrong belief might be ignoring all the evidence coming from the community with the right belief, like they're now ignoring the very evidence that would lead them to the correct belief. Right, yeah. right. And how, so how do you set that up as an experiment, though? Well, we do a computer model, uh-huh. and it basically shows you that under reasonable assumptions that kind of match the world, you can get this to happen. So it's possible for this to happen without any social or political values at play.
0: And that's philosophy.
1: This is how philosophy,
0: <laughs> wow, this is philosophy in 2019?
1: It's a it's a different kind of philosophy. I mean, so we're in a department that's very interdisciplinary that studies science and also uses the best tools of science to answer philosophical questions regarding things like belief. I mean, epistemology, the study of knowledge is, right. like, you know, one of the core areas of philosophy.
0: Caitlin O'Connor and James Weatherall are the authors <laughs> mm-hmm. of *The Misinformation Age*. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. Thanks, oh, Mike. thanks
1: for having us, Mike.
0: I should say they are married into each other. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't so know if that's are. important. But <laughs> <laughs> to us,
1: to yeah. us, but maybe not other yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: And now the spiel, Joe Biden has declared and Anita Hill has declared his apology unaccepted and unacceptable, chimes in the chorus of critics predisposed to judge Joe Biden's newfound regret as inadequate. They have a point, which I will get to, but he has a point too. Joe Biden says he wishes he could have given Anita Hill the hearing that she deserved. Well, he could have, he literally could have, he just didn't. But let us define what actually happened and analyze why. This may all be confusing for people who have only heard the tale of the Clarence Thomas hearings as refracted through the lens of current attitudes or as written by historians with a thesis to prove. So I'd like to go back and tell you as best I can what actually happened. Because remember, in Joe Biden, we are talking about a senator who voted against Clarence Thomas, who in fact led the charge against Clarence Thomas and who was a defender of Anita Hill. The question seems to be the forcefulness of the charge and the sincerity of that defense, maybe even the quality of it. Here was Joe Biden on the floor of the Senate as part of a speech explaining why he was voting no on confirming Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court.
3: Because Professor Hill came across as so credible, People were left with only one of two choices. She's credible, therefore believe her, or she's credible, therefore say she's crazy. There is absolutely not one shred of evidence to suggest that Professor Hill is fantasizing. Not one shred of evidence to suggest that Professor Hill isn't and has not been in total control of all her faculties.
0: Now, if you're wondering why Joe Biden would spend time on what, in retrospect, seems like an easily dismissible charge that Anita Hill was crazy or that she was petty, well... That was the counter-argument that was being offered at the time. Perhaps her ego was bruised. This from the same Senate vote that I played the Joe Biden clip from. In 1991, this is South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond.
4: I have been contacted by several psychiatrists suggesting that it is entirely possible she is suffering from delusions. Perhaps she is living in a fantasy world. Dean Cothé, the founding dean of the School of Law at Old Roberts University, who knew both of them well, has stated his opinion that Ms. Hill's allegations are not only unbelievable, but preposterous and the product of fantasy.
0: Strom Thurmond quoting the dean of Oral Roberts University. You don't get more credible than that. But old Strom did wind up saying something that actually has a bearing on the legitimacy of the criticism
4: directed at Biden. Fairly and with respect for all concerned. It was a
0: concern for all, significantly the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, that looks the worst in retrospect. Anita Hill blamed Biden for, among other things, rushing her testimony, failing to adequately and accurately inform her that Clarence Thomas, not she, would be the first to give their testimony. And most importantly, she faulted him for his decision not to call a trio of female witnesses who also could have testified that Clarence Thomas harassed them. Witnesses of that type would not be called. It was agreed by Biden in negotiation with his Republican colleagues on the committee. And he stuck by his negotiated position, even though it meant that Clarence Thomas's witnesses could testify that they had never seen him harass anyone. They certainly didn't harass them. And the committee would never hear from perfect rebuttal witnesses who would say, oh, yeah, he harassed me and me and me. Joe Biden cared very much about the opinion of his Republican colleagues, to a fault, you might argue. There was also the fact that Joe Biden very much wants to be liked, still does. He said as much in his speech, rejecting the Thomas nomination.
3: I became a defense attorney instead of a prosecutor because that's where I find more comfort. I'm not accusatory by nature.
0: Now, it's not the case that Anita Hill had zero witnesses of her own. Four different witnesses testified that years earlier, years before the hearing, but after Clarence Thomas, I guess we have to say, allegedly harassed her, that Anita Hill told them, point blank, Clarence Thomas harassed me. Four. This was not enough for Senator, oh, you guessed it, Strom Thurmond. This is a little bit of an indulgence of a clip, but you just can't believe what went on at some of these hearings. So at issue was a judge named Susan Horshner. And old Strom wanted to know, but were you actually in the room when Clarence Thomas was harassing Anita Hill?
4: Or did you only hear about it from Anita Hill a little later? I'd like to ask you this question. From your testimony, it appears that none of you four witnesses have any personal knowledge of the charges made by Professor Hill against Judge Thomas. And that all you know about the matter is what Professor Hill told you. Is that correct? I was not a precipiate witness, Senator. Was that? I was not a precipiate witness. Said. I said, that is correct. This
0: would have been a clown show if it wasn't also such a hash. It turns out that if you're predisposed not to care about answers or not to believe answers or not to ask the right questions or not to even understand the answers when they are answered correctly, then you are not going to get a fair result. Could Biden have done anything to orchestrate Thomas's rejection, you know, to make his vote stand up? Joe Biden would say no, and he has said no. The journalists Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson, in their definitive account of the hearing Strange Justice, conclude otherwise, or rather, they report that Biden's own staff came to that conclusion. Quote, five members of Biden's Judiciary Committee at the time of the hearings told me they were certain that if Biden had called the other witnesses to testify, Thomas would never have been confirmed, end quote. Maybe. Only the witnesses that were called also seemed to provide fairly compelling evidence that any reasonable person could use to conclude that Anita Hill wasn't lying or wasn't crazy. That's just the thing, though. And that's the thing about reasonable people. Of the 54 members of the Senate who voted yes to confirm Thomas, 11 of whom were Democrats, most of them seemed unpersuadable by any evidence that could have been put forward. I think the overall usefulness of the incident about Joe Biden calling Anita Hill to apologize and her saying she has to do more and everyone else faulting Joe Biden for the quality of his apology, even though they don't know exactly what went on in the conversation. There is a usefulness to it, but it's not the thing that critics are lighting on, which is they point to Joe Biden as having an indifference to women or lacking the care to craft what they would define as the perfect apology. But I think the flaw is that it exposes something in the Biden style of governance or leadership. He thinks if you get everyone in a room, like him and his Republican colleagues back in the Judiciary Committee, get everyone in a room, you will get them through bonhomie and respectfulness to agree to the best policies for America. I don't know if that was ever true. Seems pretty flawed in 2019 doesn't mean to me that scorched earth ultra-partisanship is the right answer or the better answer. It just seems like that old clubby way of doing business has passed its sell-by date. It also shows me that Biden tends to rely on emotional intelligence more than actual literal intelligence. And that while he's great at emoting, he's less good at clear-headed decision-making – Biden has a pretty long list of decisions that history might be pronouncing harsh judgments upon, not because he's immoral or unfeeling, but quite the opposite, because he continually makes intellectual mistakes or fails to show clear-eyed unsentimentality. A couple examples. He had an idea of partitioning Iraq along sectarian lines. It was never implemented, but it was weird. Or His occasional votes through the years against partial birth abortion, that seems to me a little too self-consciously centrist. And his opposition to the operation that killed bin Laden? Well, I read what his reasoning was. I just think it was wrong. I don't know if Bernie Sanders would have approved the Osama bin Laden raid, though Osama bin Laden is the scion of a millionaire, and he engaged in rent-seeking behavior in addition to terrorism, so he might have. But the point is... In Joe Biden's almost 50 years of public life, there are plenty of red flags if what you want in your president is someone who is a clear-eyed, logical decision-maker whose process is uncluttered by sentiment. Now, that decidedly does not describe the criticism that Joe Biden has lately been receiving, but that should be the criticism. Ever the conciliatory force, maybe Joe Biden himself would revel In the common ground implied by the statement, Joe Biden's critics are wrong, but so is Joe Biden. And that's it for today's show. And now for the spiel, all the credits will be injected inside this tape of Senator Robert Byrd in 1991 trying to find a piece of paper while speaking on the Senate floor.
3: Doesn't matter. I want to be exact.
0: The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Has the senator found his paper yet? No? Okay. Well, then, TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. Let us give the senator a second or two. Let us check back in. Oh, I was, I was momentarily distracted. All right. And thanks for listening. Nonsense.
4: Nonsense.